libertarianism, socialism, classical liberalism, Marxism, anarchism. They're all terms that are thrown around in political discourse, but it's vitally important we understand these concepts and assess their merits and shortcomings. The IA broadly describes itself as a classical liberal think tank, which furthers an understanding of free markets in solving economic and social problems. But liberalism is a broad church, and many who believe in free markets would also describe themselves as libertarian. Uh, I bet that some of you listening to this would also describe yourself as libertarian. So in this podcast, I sat down with Christian Nemitz, who is head of political economy at the Institute of Economic Affairs, and Mark Glendening, who is head of cultural affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs, to unpick what libertarianism is. But I also wanted to know a bit more about what is termed as libertarian socialism. You know, how and why do both left and right claim to be libertarian? Uh, Christian, I'd like to turn to you, what is libertarianism? Because there is a bit of confusion surrounding the term, because people on the left and the right claim to be libertarians. Indeed, there's a lot of confusion. Um, there are two schools of thought that you could broadly describe as libertarian or that, that would be described as libertarian. Um, one of them is, and, and it's important to point out that they have nothing in common with one another. It's not that they are somehow different factions of the same movement or anything. It's a pure coincidence that both of them use the same word or are described with the same word. Uh, one of them is uh, the, the so-called left libertarians, or uh, which are basically anarcho-socialists. Uh, this goes back to the 19th century. There were people at the time who um, were essentially socialists in, in the sense that they agreed with Karl Marx's uh, critique of capitalism and believed that it had to be replaced by an economy based on collective ownership. Uh, where they differed from Marx is that they didn't believe in a state, uh, which Marx clearly did. He said there will have to be a revolution at some point, and then you will get the working class, the proletariat, taking over collectively, and they will build a new state. There will be a state which uh, consists of the working class as a whole, and they become the new ruling class. Uh, so there will be a worker state, the dictatorship of the proletariat, that was standard Marxism, and there were people at the time, uh, mostly Russian anarchists, who uh, disagreed with that, uh, disagreed with the analysis, but said, well, but that's not the solution, because uh, they said that new state, even if you call it a worker state or, or whatever, the people leading that state will become like a new ruling class. Uh, they will become a new ruling elite. And um, there was there's this famous quote from uh, Mikhail Bakunin, who was probably the leading uh, thinker of that faction, uh, who said to, to Marx, uh, well, you will still have a state elite that will beat people with a stick, and that it doesn't help if you call that stick the people's stick. And um, well, that turned out to be true. That is, of course, what later did happen uh, in after Marxist revolution. So there was that faction, uh, the, the anarcho-socialists in opposition to Marx. They were later called libertarian socialists. I don't think they themselves called themselves that, but it was just a way of differentiating themselves, uh, differentiating them from the Marxists. And later on, it got a bit more diffuse. Uh, later on, that term just became used by uh, 
leftists who would have considered themselves Marxists, uh, or, or even today would, would consider themselves Marxists, but who were also anti-Soviet uh, and later anti-Maoist, anti uh, because, uh, well, these examples, once they existed, were obviously very non-libertarian, regardless of how you want to define it. And so uh, you get people saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a socialist, but not in that sense. I don't mean that. I don't mean uh, what you see there or there. Uh, but then it just becomes a variation of this old cliche, uh, this isn't real socialism, that isn't real socialism, that's not real socialism either. Uh, so therefore, uh, it can also be a Weasley cop-out, a way of saying, I'm a socialist, but don't blame me for anything that happens <laughs> in any socialist state. Okay, so that, that's the, the so-called libertarian socialists on the one hand. Then you get the actual libertarians, libertarians in, in the sense in which we would use the term. That uh, came about because uh, in American English, at some point uh, during the 20th century, the term liberal became redefined. Um, not deliberately, I think, it's not that somebody deliberately tried to change the meaning, it's just that nowadays, uh, in American English, liberal means uh, what we would call left-wing or progressive. Uh, so moved away from classical liberalism. And that meant that the actual liberals uh, had a problem. They could say, well, I'm a liberal, but not in, a, not in the way you probably think. I'm a different kind of liberal. I'm an, I'm an old school European liberal or something. But that's kind of, kind of if you have to explain, uh, uh, once you use a term as a self-descriptor and then you have to explain what you don't mean, then it kind of defeats the whole purpose of having a label like that. The whole point of it is that you can, uh, that you have a, a single label that conveys quickly, easily what, what you are, broadly speaking, ideologically. And um, therefore those people had a problem uh, and they just started to adopt the term libertarian instead. Mm -hmm. uh, up until that point, you could say libertarian is just a new word for liberal, but it acquired quickly the connotation of being more radical. Yeah. So not just a different word, but uh, some something like some of them would then say, would then go on and say, actually, even, even the classic functions of the state that most liberals would concede, uh, national defense, uh, the court system, police system, even that can be privatized according to some. And, and mm. since those people uh, called themselves libertarians, uh, it quickly acquired a meaning of being more purist and um, more extreme than conventional classical liberals. Mm. Um, going back to Christian's um, point um, about the demarcation between real libertarianism and um, anarchist uh, libertarianism. Um, I think there are two key points of difference uh, between the two traditions. So the first one is a completely different attitude to the whole idea of property. Um, the real libertarians see property um, in line with John Locke as something that primarily involves um, or is related to your own mind and body. This was the 17th hmm. century conception of property as actually starting in the, the physical body and intellect hmm. of each individual person. 
And if I just for the listeners, so I think it's the famous in the two treaties or whatever it was, Locke, if you work on the field and you reap what you sow, so you put your labour into something so you sort of have ownership of that. Is that what you're talking yes. about? Yes. So that um, other forms of property um, come about as a consequence of you as an individual utilising your primary source of property and then... Um, engaging with the material world outside of yourself, and then you create uh, forms of property, some of which can be, then become capital. And this is what socialists of all types, whether they call themselves anarchists or are classically Marxist, see as the fundamental source of all oppression. And then the second point I would make is that partly as a result of that analysis, uh, Libertarian, real libertarians um, have a definition of what constitutes liberty which is linked to metaphysical reality in the sense that it's based upon a proper understanding of what it is to be a human being. And that includes our belief that human beings have agency and the potential for rational decision-making. Whereas the leftist interpretation of freedom is a fantastical one which simply involves uh, believing that um, any outcome uh, that they disapprove of and don't want is by definition or constitutes a violation of liberty mm. and therefore they are the only people the elite defining uh, the, the ideology, whether they're anarchists or more conventional socialists, they are the only people who can define actually what constitutes freedom and what constitutes oppression. Mm. So they're fundamentally beginning to go down, even in the 19th century, the road of postmodernism, whereby the concept of liberty is divorced from material, metaphysical, and human reality. But yeah, it would be the key difference uh, would be the, the the attitude to property rights that uh, for li for libertarians, for actual libertarians, uh, private property, individual property is perfectly legitimate. Some things can be yours, some things can be mine, and uh, there's there's nothing wrong with that. And if if uh, on the basis of that. Um, people enter into a, an employer-employee relationship mm. uh, or uh, more generally some kind of relationship where I say um, you can use an asset that I own, um, you you pay me for it um, or whatever, if that gives rise to, to economic relations uh, on a basis, there's, there's nothing wrong with that and that's not coercive, that's, that's all, that's voluntary. If, um, if if you want to work for me, uh, and that means under a contract where I decide what's what, what, what you do, if you want, uh, if uh, if you want to fulfill that contract, then that's uh, that is for for libertarian that that's a voluntary contract like any other, nothing wrong with that. Whereas uh, an anarcho-socialist would see that as coercive, uh, would say, well, yeah, that person may have signed a contract, but they don't. It's not really voluntary. It's not really a free contract. Uh, often the argument is that um, we have to work because otherwise we would starve. 
where the libertarian uh, would of course say, well, yes, we have to do some kind of work because uh, food doesn't just magically appear on, on the table and the table itself doesn't magically appear, but you're not tied to any one particular employer. You can choose between dozens or hundreds or thousands of competing ones and therefore um, it clearly is a voluntary decision and there's nothing coercive and nothing immoral about it. Hmm. I, I think there's a, we've got a lot there already and so just to summarize the what we understand as libertarians and left-wing form of politics of thought it's the idea that the state is a instrument for class oppression essentially from from the left perspective um, and then you get into the mid 20th century where what we would call liberals sort of take the the word libertarianism to describe their movement as well so you've got you've got a bit of a hijacking of a word really um, and then Mark you started to talk about what the difference is and the difference between the two and one of them is property and one of them is the conceptualization of human nature is that is yes that what it is to be human so fundamentally at the core of all socialist um, ideology is an anti-humanism yeah. it's actually a denial of the reality of what it is to be a human and so the left elite whether anarchist or something else give themselves license to define what constitutes freedom and doesn't constitute freedom and then in various ways to try to impose their preferred outcomes on the entirety of humanity. Mm. If I could just, before I move on to my next question, if I could just put it to you, it seems from the start that the libertarian socialists have sort of got it right, have they not? They're, they're targeting, if you identify as a libertarian, I mean, I'm not saying what I believe in, I'm just saying as devil's advocate here. You know, if you believe that the state is a ideological state apparatus, a repressive state apparatus, right? I think both left and right libertarians could agree on, because the state has power to do good or bad. And we've sort of united on that, that there isn't, you know, the state isn't, shouldn't be all powerful. But is the difference then of what you do with that freedom in this libertarian society that these, the left and right have? Is that, am I getting close to, to what you're trying to say there? Well, a classic liberal would say that uh, a state doesn't have to be oppressive. A state can be a neutral arbiter, can be like a referee, can uh, set some general rules and enforce those rules. And uh, a state that does just that would not be coercive, whereas a Marxist uh, of, of, of any shade would say, no, there are no neutral rules. Um, the, the rules that a state comes up with uh, are going to be in the interest of the ruling class. And um, where the where the, the Marxists would differ from the so-called libertarian socialists is that uh, Marx uh, Marxists would say, and that's why we need a worker state, so that the working class is the ruling class, and then the rules uh, and the, the the laws are then uh, in the interest of the working class, uh, because then you have a, a worker state. Uh, whereas the libertarian socialists would say, no, there is no such thing. Um, even if the working class collectively takes power and builds a so-called worker state, uh, quite quickly you will get a bureaucratic elite within that state and it will cease to rep truly represent the workers 
it will just be another ruling class. So that's that's where they would differ. Mm. But I think that the important point to make is that this difference between anarchist and conventional Marxian socialists is from a liberal stroke libertarian uh, perspective. Um, this is purely rhetorical. Uh, anarchists do, or anarchists, left-wing anarchists, do believe in an agency that, like the state, has the capacity to coerce the individual into conformity with the collective um, outcomes uh, the left elite within that society wish to impose upon it. So anarchists are themselves very authoritarian and like Marxists they uh, envisage a state of affairs which is essentially post-political where there is no fundamental political debate concerning the fundamentals of the society uh, they are presiding over. So they have this fantasy of a society in which everybody fundamentally uh, is in agreement or forced to be in agreement and they don't tolerate any fundamentally dissenting views within it. And this is why, and we may come on to this later when discussing specific um, anarchists, there is actually historically um, a close connection between anarchism and um, early manifestations of fascism, that the two were actually quite uh, connected because both of them, both of these traditions had this conception of a totalitarian society in which um, everything was subsumed under some form of political organization mm. and all decisions were taken collectively. Mm. I think we'll, we'll, we'll move on to that. I mean, I think the people might hear the word anarchist and think, well, everyone's, everyone's running around doing, you know, whatever <laughs> they want, but the, yeah. reading into it, and I am no expert on this, but doing some reading for this podcast, the idea of less, uh, libertarian socialism is an organization of people in workers as a collective democracy in certain in working spheres or different spheres of life so it isn't complete freedom as you were saying but we will go on to that i just wanted to know a bit more about who the key thinkers are associated with libertarian socialism yes there were uh, the, the the uh the russian anarchists anarchist socialists that i mentioned earlier mikhail bakunin and uh later peter kropotkin um these were, I guess, actual anarchists. They, they really wanted to abolish all state uh, institutions, including police and, uh, and the army. Now, even that runs into um, some of the problems that Mark alluded to, that, okay, you can, you can, uh, you can say we abolish all coercive state-like institutions, but uh, when you have a specific idea of how people should organize, uh, what do you do if they do it differently? What do you do, for example, as an anarchist? Let's say you get your way, you sweep away all institutions, uh, state and uh, private alike, uh, private capitalist institutions, and um, you turn over the productive uh, capital to um, uh, 
to groups of workers that just take them over. Let's say you have uh, some some um, some some group that just seizes assets, and this happens in various places. Um, and then uh, you have the village or, or whoever, or a trade union branch owning whatever they take over. Uh, okay, it can start that way, but what if um, they then decide on the ground to revert to something that looks a bit like a capitalist relation? Let's say you have some workers who don't want to incur the risk of being involved in the running of a company. They say, no, actually, I don't want to get involved with that. Uh, I don't want to incur any uh, any personal risk. I just want to do my work from nine to five, and I just want you to pay me a certain amount. And that, that's all I want. Um, and then you get some who say, well, okay, I'm prepared to take more responsibility and more of a risk. Uh, but that also means if things go well, um, then I want a bigger share uh, of, uh, of whatever revenue uh, profit we generate. And what if something like a capitalist relationship then re-emerges? Uh, what do you do then as an anarchist? You have to forcibly stop that in some, in some way. So that's, well, that's why you get some inconsistencies there right from the start. Just to inject, just to clarify, so it is a bit of a confusing concept when I was you know, getting my notes ready for this. So what essentially happens in a libertarian socialist society, if you can call it that, is that because no one can own the means of production, it has to be democratically shared between the workers. Mm -hmm. And that's why you are talking about the, the risk, you know, if you don't want to share, share the responsibility of a stake in the running of it and you'd rather work nine till five, that's, that's where the problems happen, right? You are not free to do uh, that. Yeah, and what about sole traders? I yeah. mean, who then say become incredibly successful because lots of people uh, want to exchange uh, whatever it is they have produced, whether collectively or not, for the services of a um, particular individual within that society who then becomes, you know, fabulously wealthy uh, as a consequence of uh, voluntary trade with other uh, people within the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's always the problem uh, with, um, with with any kind of uh, philosophy. When, when, whenever somebody says, oh, I believe in, uh, in free choice, people should do whatever they like. Uh, and when you also have very strong views about what the results of that social order should be, as um, so-called libertarian socialists clearly have, they have specific models in mind uh, that they want worker cooperatives. Uh, mm -hmm and they want uh, things to be run on a small scale uh, rather than a transnational corporation and, and things like that. And if you have strong views about what the outcomes should be, uh, and you also see yourself as anti-authoritarian, there's always a tension here. Well, what do you do if that uh, social order produces outcomes that you don't like? And that's where conventional, uh, actual libertarians are just a lot more honest. They would say, yes, um, a free society could lead to outcomes that I'm not going to like. Mm. And uh, this could produce a society where I am not going to be super happy in. But so what? Yeah. And also, I mean, the people who are honest relatively compared to these sort of, you know, pastiche, uh, Bakunin type um, anarchists, Often it has to be said in the 19th century, they were from um, aristocratic backgrounds. So they were the sort of equivalent um, in their day of the sort of people you see in, you know, groups like Momentum and on an Extinction Rebellion. They were sort of Gosterish uh, Trustafarians. 
Um, and so <laughs> they were somewhat uh, separated from the, the realities of, um, of uh, material existence. But at least the conventional Marxists uh, were honest about the implications of um, establishing and maintaining a socialist society. You know, Stalin famously once said, you have to break a few eggs to create an omelette, whereas the um, anarchists of that period and today um, refuse to acknowledge that there could be a situation in which uh, a, a significant proportion of the society don't want to go along or don't want to dissolve themselves into the omelette of, of their own volition. And so then what do you do with people who, again, are fundamentally politically different? So they have a lot of the, the original anarchists um, based their ideas for a, 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 an anarchist society or a socialist society on sort of Rousseau style romanticism, They're very reactionary views. They, they believed essentially in a pre-civilized pre form of human organization, sort of hunter-gatherer tribes in which there was very little private property and everybody was part of a sort of collective or you know, something like the Vikings, um, where there would be some sort of coming together occasionally to make collective decisions. Um, so they had a very primitive, one would say, reactionary um, worldview stemming, I would say, from from Rousseau. Mm. Though he's, like you said, forced to be free. Yeah, as you exactly. Said, as you said. Um, Rosa Luxemburg pops up a lot when you type in libertarian socialism. Mm -hmm. What was her impact? As far as I know, she didn't live very long and she died uh, in Poland, I think, was it somewhere like she? No, in, in Berlin. She in was Poland. the founder of the German Communist Party after the First World War. Uh, she was originally a member of the Social Democratic Party and uh, there was a split in that movement uh, over the, um, well, firstly, just uh, wartime loans. Uh, loans had to be approved by Parliament and the Social Democratic Party, which were, I think, the biggest party at the time already. Uh, most of them voted in favour of uh, of that and thereby enabling the German state to, to wage a war. Um, and the Social Democratic Party said, well, OK, yes, we, we believe in uh, all workers of the world unite and so on, but uh, this is a war. So uh, for now, uh, we are first and foremost patriots. And um, then there was a faction within the party that then split off from them. They later became, well, they were first the, the independent Social Democratic Party and then a more radical wing within them. They were the embryo. First they became the, the Spartacist League and then the Communist Party of Germany. And their successor, uh, they were ultimately the ones that, that led the East German state many, uh, many years later. Uh, but she was the original founder uh, of the, uh, the Communist Party, 1918-19, uh, was involved in the Spartacist uprising, uh, which was an attempt to, to recreate the Russian Revolution, but in Berlin. And um, that was when the Social Democrats, who were then in government uh, by the time, uh, allied with, uh, with well, first the military and uh, the so-called Freikorps, 
which was a paramilitary troop and uh, told them basically you have to stop these people and uh, this was uh, when when you had uh, this massive split on on the left between the mainstream social democrats who uh, yeah you could you could say by that act abandoned this idea of revolutionary takeover and said no we we actually believe in parliamentary democracy and we keep it that way and the communists who uh, believed in violent uprising uh, and luxembourg got killed in in that process um, later became more importantly for, for today um, later became a hero of um, of a lot of socialists who wanted to evade responsibility for actual socialist projects and that is mostly that is not so much because of what she did as a politician but because of a book she wrote in um, I think 1918 on the Russian Revolution in which she criticized some aspects of the of Soviet Russia of the the emerging Soviet Union um, particularly this uh, the, the Leninist um, the early authoritarian tendencies and so it became a con convenient way of saying ah look the Leninists they just misunderstood socialism the real socialists are people like Rosa Luxemburg um, mm -hmm. the, the anti-authoritarian ones but that is a complete misreading uh, she was first of all on the whole she was massively supportive of the Russian Revolution and uh, she admired Lenin and she loved the Bolsheviks she criticized some aspects of it but that doesn't mean that she was uh, somehow against the system as a, as a whole she said uh, these are some emergency measures and uh, it's lamentable they just need to be careful that this doesn't become permanent um, so criticized some parts of it but was on the whole absolutely a massive fan of of the russian revolution and uh in so far as there was a difference between her and lenin i'd say it's not that she had a more libertarian understanding uh, of, of socialism or that that she was generally less less um, authoritarian minded than than lenin was or i'd say there was there, there was there wasn't really any ideological difference between her and Lenin, the difference was simply that Lenin was in power and he had to do stuff. He had to, he had opposition, uh, there were people who didn't like him and um, he had that choice, uh, do I maintain the power that we've just acquired um, or do I risk losing it all again? Whereas she was sitting in Berlin, uh, was very far away from, from uh, all that and uh, she could compare the nascent Soviet Union, the future Soviet Union to her ideal and of course yeah it fell short and, and it was easy for her to say ah but this isn't exactly what I wanted. But isn't it worth commenting in this context of, of Germany in that period that uh, I don't know if they were Spartacists but certainly ultra leftists got control for, for a time in Munich yes uh, and then I mean quite quickly started killing people mm -hmm. I mean uh, so you know, there was an insight even away from the Soviet Union even you said oh it's Lenin and Stalin and the betrayed you know uh, the, the, the Marxist the essence of Marxism well actually when you saw um, in Germany uh, and elsewhere regimes um, claiming to be socialist getting complete power uh, then you see the same sort of stuff happening yes there uh, you had the usual uh, sequence of events in the uh, 
the so-called Bavarian Soviet Republic. Uh, that it, it always starts with idealism and, uh, and and romanticism, and then at some point the people in power have to actually organize stuff and run stuff, and then Stalin-like figures uh, quite quickly take over. Uh, it's just normally this takes a couple of years. In the Bavarian Soviet Republic, it all happened in within within weeks. Uh, and that's why this is one of the examples. Normally, socialists uh, love these short-lived examples, like mm. the Paris Commune, uh, or, or <laughs> where, where uh, it was cut off before it could become the usual thing to turn out the way it always does. That's why they love Salvador Allende and all these these short-lived examples. Not so much the the Bavarian Soviet Republic, because there it happened. It all happened quite quickly. But that was the reason why. Uh, the, the Social Democrats in Berlin uh, saw that example and thought, well, we don't really want that, do we? Mm. And, and you, you've written a blog for the IA on this. And this. You look at Lenin's work, The State and Revolution, which he wrote in 1917, which mm -hmm. you say is a good source to judge of intentions from people on the left and the actual outcomes amongst the people who are in power, which I will link in the show notes of this. But I'd like to move on to libertarian socialism in action so i think we've had a good discussion on what it is and who was involved in these ideas are there any examples of where the system has worked or been tried yes the example that uh, always uh, comes up is catalonia uh, anarchist catalonia during the spanish civil war now this was a uh, very short-lived therefore we can't really draw very strong conclusions and uh, it was under conditions of a, of a civil war so so if if the outcomes weren't great um even i wouldn't want to hold that against them because if there had been a, a libertarian part of spain at the time i don't think they would have had brilliant results either under those conditions um but there is what happened there was that in in catalonia you had a, a coalition of uh, of anarchists and and communists and um, there was, there is a, an essay on this by uh, Brian Kaplan, the economist. Uh, he looks at the tensions between the idea of uh, worker ownership and the idea of a socialist economy. Because essentially what happened was you had uh, initially quite chaotic seizures of, of private firms. Uh, you had workers' committees taking them over, and this is uh, the, the sort of thing that uh, romantic socialists always loved the idea that um, that you have these self-organized, spontaneous, grassroots uh, worker initiatives. Uh, it's just that what happened then was that you had these worker committees taking over companies. Uh, they were the, the new de facto owners. But what happened then was once they were managing their companies, they behaved just like capitalists. Um, it wasn't really a change in an economic in the economic system. You just had a change of ownership. You had one set of owners were kicked out, and new ones have taken over. But this is just like a takeover within capitalism, except that it happened by force. Uh, but uh, you don't have a new economic system if you just kick out one set of owners and put in new ones. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what happened. And uh, some of the anarchist politicians and thinkers at the time. Uh, were then very uneasy about this. They, they said, okay, we, ha we now have these worker-controlled companies, but they're still sort of capitalists, aren't they? Uh, they still compete against each other, and it's not that they organize across 
um, industry lines and somehow manage the entire economy collectively, you just have several worker-owned companies, mm. but they're still capitalist companies. Uh, and therefore, they then thought of several ways of uh, of coordinating the activities uh, of these companies uh, in, in a in a system-wide way, in an economy-wide way. It's just that when you do that, you very quickly move to something that looks quite like the Soviet Union again. You just reinvent the Soviet Union. You may say from the start, I, I want something totally different. Uh, but when you then try to establish some, uh, if you then uh, try, for example, from the center to get this company to cooperate with that company uh, in, in ways that they maybe don't want to and wouldn't choose for themselves, you end up with some way of directing the economy and something that will look quite like central planning. Mm -hmm. uh, it only lasted for three years, this anarcho-communist experiment. But if, uh, if that side had won the Spanish Civil War, it, it probably would have descended into something quite like the Soviet Union quite quickly. Mm -hmm. It's just that it didn't live, uh, didn't last for long enough, so uh, it never actually happened. And therefore, you can project all sorts of things, all sorts of romantic fantasies into it. Uh, you can say, ah, oh, well, if this had continued, this would have been our kind of socialism, our romantic grassroots worker cooperative paradise. Uh, and we can't definitively prove that that wouldn't have happened. Um, it's just that it would be very surprising if it had ended in any other way. Uh, I mean, there, there is, uh, and just very quickly, there, there is a parallel that we then saw uh, about 80 years later uh, that in Venezuela, uh, the same thing happened again, that uh, Chavez had this idea of a completely different kind of socialism. Didn't really know how to do that, but somehow thought, yeah, let's start with worker cooperatives. They sound kind of nice. Everybody loves worker cooperatives. Uh, and build up a, a worker co-op sector uh, with massive subsidies from oil revenue. Uh, okay, then you have thousands of worker co-ops in Venezuela, and they might still be around now. Uh, and at some point, Chavez realized that they were just little private capitalist companies. And then he fell out of love with the idea. And there is some, even some quote from him where he realizes that. I can't remember the exact quote, but it must be in the... In, in my socialism book where he then says, okay, you have a company that's run by 20 workers, but that's just a capitalist company. And these 20 workers are then the capitalists. And uh, you would think, well, <laughs> could have told you that. <laughs> uh, you can almost imagine Lenin um, watching this, sitting in hell, probably, <laughs> watching this and thinking, well. Rolling I his eyes, have, yeah. Could have told you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we should move on now to left liberal libertarianism or uh, libertarian socialism today. Um, what does this look like? We've talked about examples, I mean, more recently Venezuela, but we've talked about um, in Catalonia in the 1930s. Um, what are libertarian socialists today doing, Mark? Well, um, you know, we have some prime examples um, of groups in the West who certainly lay claim to that tradition and um, they give an insight into the inherent uh, authoritarianism and illiberalism of 
such an ideology. So we see, for example, in America primarily, not so much here, uh, Antifa, um, which for a while took over um, a part of Portland, mm-hmm. as as we know, um, and you know, exercised terror within that town, declared a zone um, free from conventional policing, and then people proceeded to have their houses robbed. Um, uh, all kinds of uh, intimidation was exercised on the local uh, population. So, you know, Antifa are a very, very sinister development, and I would argue that Extinction Rebellion are a sort of proto-fascistic movement in this country, bringing together anarchism uh, with a very primitivist um, type of mindset which is anti-rational and here we see you know an echo with the, the prime kind of anarchist thinker from the late 19th early 20th century who brings the two traditions of anarchism and fascism together and that is um the french anarchist george sorel um who started off as a conventional socialist anarchist uh, but then moved into an alliance with a French fascist organization, Action Francaise of uh, Charles Maurras. Um, and both of them were anti-rational, anti-liberal democracy. Extinction Rebellion today say they are explicitly an anti-liberal, uh, they're against liberal democracy and seek to replace it with some unspecified form of decision taking, which presumably they will be in control of. So, I, you know, we're seeing, I think, socialist anarchism kind of revealing its true mm. colours through its, through its actions mm. today in, in parts of the West. Yeah, but what we also saw, in, like in this liberated, in inverted parts of, uh, in inverted commas, part uh, of Portland, that they quickly set up their own de facto police and um, well, basically a, a, a mob, a gang of thugs. With, with guns. I mean, they had people, you know, um, going around with guns and, you know, forcing people at gunpoint to hand over their property. And, but this has always been an issue with some anarchists that they would uh, talk about things like a citizens, a, a workers, militia or whatever, but something that sounds quite like a state institution. and. Um, it's uh, that's that's always one being one of the problems with them that they will say oh when, when we when we do it it's not coercive it's not really violent it's just we, we're, we're just it's just an expression well, it's liberatory of, uh, to of, use that language yeah, yeah. It's, it's just an expression of the will of the workers yeah. we saw the same in you know in may 68 in in paris when the parts of paris were sort of came under the control of, of the student ultra left i mean they they certainly obviously used violence. So um, the the differences between anarcho-socialism and conventional Marxism are primarily, again, as I would suggest, uh, symbolic, aesthetic. Um, the, if you look at the actual fundamental essence of these movements, um, they're all authoritarian. Uh, they may present themselves in different ways, use different rhetoric, but they're fundamentally about an elite being able to impose 
through violence or the threat of violence, uh, their will upon um, a citizenry who have no democratic recourse. We saw that, you know, to, in Bristol, for example, with Black Lives Matter, giving themselves the right to go around uh, Sorry, pulling down statues, yeah. statues and then later attacking the police and what have you. Well, the, the ordinary burghers of Bristol were not really given much of a say mm. in what Black Lives Matter stroke Extinction Rebellion were doing there. But going back to your question, uh, Libertarian Socialism today, I'd say nowadays if you come across someone who calls themselves a Libertarian Socialist, Libertarian Communist, Libertarian Marxist, whatever, uh, what that means nowadays, it's even more diffuse than in earlier times. Usually these are people who are just socialists, but who don't want any responsibility for any actual examples of that in action and therefore it's just a way of saying um, real socialism hasn't been tried. It's, it's just that old cliche uh, repackaged by claiming, by using that, uh, that modifier, uh, that adjective libertarian. It's, it's just a way of saying, but not like that, not like any of the examples uh, that we saw. But this is worthless if you can't also say very specifically what you want to do differently. And these people can't. And that's always been uh, the issue. It's always easy to say, I, I don't like the outcomes of, of Stalinism. I don't like the outcomes of Maoism. I don't like the outcomes of what happens in North Korea or Cuba or now in Venezuela or uh, the, the various uh, earlier examples. Uh, but if you can't say what exactly you want to do differently, then that's not much of a critique. And therefore it is quite telling that, um, going back to this, that they all uh, gather around this, uh, uh, that, that a lot of them gather around Rosa Luxemburg as this symbolic figure of somehow a different kind of socialism, because she wasn't able to do that either, uh, spell out an alternative. She uh, criticized Lenin uh, because he was imprisoning uh, his opponents, but there's nothing in, in her book on the Russian Revolution which suggests a, a different way really. It's all just, she had this idea that the mere act of a revolution somehow transforms human nature. Mm -hmm. Somehow um, people will become more public spirited and cooperative and they will, um, it will be a transcending, uh, transcendental experience that they will somehow uh, grow into better human beings and whatever and and, uh, and you will not need any coercion anymore. Yeah. It will all just somehow take care of, it, of itself. Yeah. But you never address the question, what if that doesn't happen? Yeah. What, if, what if you have a revolution and it turns out people are still pretty much like they were before? What do you do then? I think it's a very, very important point you, you made there that a lot of these kind of people, including sort of Luxembourgs and you know more recent uh, equivalents, are addicted to the to the idea of revolutionary change uh, as a form of sort of political theatre. Uh, they actually have an instinctive love of violence, and so they're using politics and ultra left politics really for some sort of psychotherapeutic reason um, uh, and they're visiting their rage upon the world and society through this medium they're not really serious about trying to establish um, a functioning form of socialism at least these sort of classical marxists you know were serious about 
uh, as we saw in the Soviet Union and other places, they were s- deadly serious about imposing uh, centralized economic planning and 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 all the rest. Um, these are often primarily kind of bourgeois fantasists um, who are involved in politics for, I think, reasons that are quite different and therefore very sinister. Mm. Martin Van Denning, Christian Nemitz, thank you very much for that. I thought that was a fascinating podcast. Um, But unfortunately, that is where we'll have to end it. Um, If you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe to the IA podcast. Uh, We'll see you next week. Thank you.